Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Tonight we're going to talk about the sealing of God's servants. The sealing of God's servants. Um, F.B. Meyer told a story one time about two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn. And they hired three guides, and they began their ascent at the steepest and most slippery part of this, uh, of this mountain. The men roped themselves together in order, guide, traveler, guide, traveler, and guide. And they had gone only a little way up the side of the mountain when the last man lost his footing. And he was held up temporarily by the other four uh, because each had a toehold as they were cutting the ice. And the next, but the problem was the next man slipped and then pulled the two above him down. And so now you've got one man at the top, uh, a guide, holding the other four. And uh, because he held his ground, uh, all men regained their footing. Why? Because as the most experienced guide, he drove the deepest spike he had deep into the ice. And uh, F.B. Meyer said, you know, that's a picture of you and I and Christ. Uh, we're like those men that slipped. But thank God we are holding on to Christ and he's holding on to us. And I, that's what I want you to think about tonight. Uh, as we go through the book of Revelation, you're going to see it tonight. You're going to continue to see it as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation. You'll notice how God distinguishes the difference between His people and people of the earth, the righteous and the wicked. God's people are sealed. The people of the earth take the mark of the beast. Both are marked, if you will. Uh, one's got God's seal, the other one's got the devil's mark. And as God's people, you and I are sealed and protected from judgment. And, um, but that doesn't mean we're sheltered from persecution in the world. And you're going to see that. Uh, you're going to see that over and over in Revelation. We might be protected from God's judgment, but we're not sheltered from persecution in the world. And we'll look at the believers who are sealed uh, before God's judgments are revealed on earth. And we'll discover in our lesson tonight, we're going to discover the the timing, the identity, and the location of these believers that are sealed by God. So let's, let's uh, get ready to go into it. I do want to read one quote real quick. Michael Wilcock, um, as we think about last week in Revelation 6, uh, Jesus, the Lamb of God, approached the throne of God in heaven, and He was the only one worthy to take this scroll from the Father's hand, and He began to open the seals. There were seven seals on the scroll. Six of them were opened um, <clears throat> last week when we read chapter 6. The seventh seal is in chapter 8. We'll get to that next time. But with that, I want to say this. Michael Wilcox says, Seals 1 to 4 uh, showed us the world's suffering. They were followed by seal 5, which reminded us that the church must suffer too. And there'll be no escape from suffering till the world ends with seal six. But the Christian has an inner security which is not affected by external trials. And that's true. We, we are secure in Christ. So look, if you will, in Revelation 7. I'm going to read the first three verses. Uh, the Bible says, uh, John wrote, After this I saw four angels standing 
at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, the first thing I want you to see about the sealing of God's servants is when, the timing, okay? Notice notice that as you read Revelation, the chronology of Revelation is the order in which John sees things. Okay, he has a vision of Christ walking among the candlesticks, and the candlesticks are seven churches in in Asia Minor, and he's got a word for each one of those seven churches. Then he's caught up into heaven, and he sees a throne, and he sees all all of the all all of the heavenly host worshiping the one on the throne because he created everything. He's creator, and then all of a sudden there is a scroll, and he weeps because no one's able to take the scroll. And then he's told there is one, right? There is one from the uh, tribe of Judah, a lion from the tribe of Judah, that is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. And when he looks, it's not a lion, it's a lamb. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes the the scroll and opens the seals and things happen. And then he sees this. After this, verse chapter 7, verse 1, I saw four angels standing. So, so as you read Revelation, John is telling you, I saw this, and then I saw that, and I saw this, and I saw that. And many times people assume that the things that happen in chapter 6, you know, happen here, and the things that happen in 7 happen here, and we assume that all of this is linear and, and it's chronological. But as you read this very quickly, you realize that that's not so. Again, he sees these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. and They're restraining, they're holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind can blow on earth, sea, or tree. And you see another angel rising up with the seal of the living God, and he cries out to these other angels, don't harm anything until we seal the servants of God. Now, obviously, this has to happen before the sixth seal, which is right there at the end of chapter 6, because the sixth seal is a picture of the day, judgment day, okay? It's a glimpse of it, and as you, as you see, as we go through Revelation, what you're going to see is there are intervals here. It's almost like a, a concert, if you will. There are intervals where, where um, John gives you a sneak peek of the end, and then he goes back to something else. And each time he gives you a sneak peek, there's a little bit more detail, okay? And you're going to see that as this book develops. And so notice the order of the visions does not reflect the chronology of the events that they symbolize. There is an interlude here between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And I believe the reason why is to reassure the believers, and that's what's happening here, and also to dramatize the delay of final judgment. Because when you get to the seventh seal in chapter 8, the first thing it says, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And we'll talk about that next week, but that's significant. Because up until this point, we've learned how how, um, busy, if you will, heaven is. 
because day and night there are four living creatures saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Over and over and over again, day and night, they're praising the one on the throne. And so for there to be silence in heaven for half an hour is significant. We'll get to that. But in this interlude between the sixth and seventh seal, he is reassuring the believers that before these judgments take place, the servants of God are going to be sealed. And they won't be harmed. They won't be affected by all of these judgments upon the earth, the sea, or the trees. Um, Let's go back and I'll, I'll demonstrate this. In chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, look in verse 10. Uh, This is after the fifth seal, I believe. Yeah, the fifth seal. He opened the fifth seal in chapter 6, verse 9. He saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. And in verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, How long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? And they're given a white robe and they're told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. And then the sixth seal, this violent earthquake, it shows that you know it's basically the end of the world because everybody begins to see the great day of wrath has come and they say, who is able to stand? And then he sees this vision where the angels are told, not yet until we seal the servants of God. And so that's exactly what happens. Dennis Johnson says this, the seal is the name of Christ and of God. And this becomes clear when this group of 144,000 reappears. Uh, We're going to get into that here in a minute. Um, There's a group of 144,000 people mentioned in Revelation 7. They reappear again later in the book. When you put all that together, it says this, this becomes clear when this group of 144,000 reappears, standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion with His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. That's Revelation 14.1. Thus the 144,000 bondservants of God portray the company of the victors on whom Jesus has promised to write the name of His God of the New Jerusalem and Jesus' new name. That, that's a throwback to Revelation 3, one of the promises to the seven churches that if you will conquer and be faithful to the end, he'll write the name of his God of New Jerusalem and Jesus' name on our foreheads. So it's all connected. Um, Beale says the picture of the seal here is the same as what was seen by Ezekiel when the Lord commanded the angel to put a mark on the foreheads of those who hate sin before he struck the city in judgment. That's an Old Testament prophecy in Ezekiel 9 where God was going to judge uh, the city of Jerusalem, but he wanted to mark and identify those that were loyal, that were faithful, uh, that were not doing practicing idolatry. They were f- that faithful remnant of God, and they were marked before the judgment came. And this mark protected them spiritually and likely also physically from the coming judgment. This is comparable to the mark of blood on the doors of the Israelites so that they'd be protected from God's judgment in Egypt. Remember when the Passover started, they were told to take the blood of a lamb, put it on the doorpost, and that night when the death angel came, it would pass over them. And if you remember reading that that story in the book of Exodus, you'll know that when the death angel came to Egypt, 
the, for, the firstborn male in all of the Egyptian households died, but they didn't in the Hebrews tribe or, or camp, right? Because they obeyed God and, and did what He said. And when the death angel saw that blood, He passed over them. And so that's significant because as you get, begin to get deeper into Revelation, uh, we'll note that this mark protects believers during the period of the trumpet and bowl plagues, which are very similar to the plagues in, in Egypt. So it's kind of all connected. So let's dive into this. Revelation 4, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 7. Let's read the next part, verse 4, okay? So he saw these four angels, and he saw this one angel saying, wait, we gotta, we got to seal the servants of God before these judgments take place. And then he hears the number of the sealed. Because now you're, now you're wondering, uh, who are the sealing of God's servants? Who are they? We, we've talked about the when, okay? Now let's talk about the who, okay? The identity of these people. Who are these servants? Well, let's look at what he's told. He says, I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And then he breaks it down. There's 12 tribes. So there's 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Ishkar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. Boy, that's a mouthful, wasn't it? Um, so, here we have this sealing of God's servants. The question is, who are they? Well, I want to remind you of a pattern here. Uh, look very quickly in verse 9. He says, after this, after he hears the number of the sealed, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, then in verse 9, after this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving, that stands out, and honor and power and strength, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, who are these servants? Well, first thing I want you to notice is we have a pattern now. Uh, matter of fact, this is the second time at least that we've seen it. Okay, actually, I guess it's the third. Here's the pattern, and you're going to see this pattern some more as we go through Revelation. In Revelation 1, when John had a vision of the risen, glorified Christ, he heard a voice behind him like a trumpet. Then he turned and saw the risen, glorified Christ. He heard something, then he saw something. Okay. Then, in Revelation 4 and 5, um, when he's caught up to heaven and he's seeing the throne of God, 
there in chapter 5 particularly, he's weeping because he's seeing in heaven that God has this scroll which contains some important things in it, and it's sealed, and no one's able to take the scroll. No one's able to open the seals. No one's worthy. And he begins to weep because he wants to know, you know, what's in that scroll. And then he's told, it's okay. There is one that's a lion from the tribe of Judah that is able to take the scroll. He hears that, and then when he looks, it's not a lion, it's a lamb. Still Jesus, right? But the Lamb of God. I submit to you that that pattern is at work here, okay? So for that reason, what I'm saying is, he hears about the sealed servants of God, he hears the number, 144,000, okay, uh, uh, Israelites, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and then he looks and he sees a huge multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And I'm saying that those are connected based on the patterns that we see. Now, if you're skeptical, that's okay. I'm glad you are because I need more evidence than just that, correct? And so let's, let's look at more evidence from the text that suggest that the sealed servants of God or all believers, Old Testament and New Testament. Notice the list here of the tribes of Israel. Um, you will notice if you look at these uh, list of the 12 tribes, you'll notice that if you look at it closely, it doesn't correspond to any of the other list of the 12 tribes in the Bible. Okay? You can go back to Genesis when it rehearses um, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel and all of his 12 sons. It lists all of them, and there's an order to it. And then when God gave Moses a vision, well, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but he also gave him, don't forget, a, a blueprint of the tabernacle, which ultimately would become the temple. And he gave a blueprint for whenever they broke camp, there would be certain tribes on this side, some on that side, that side, and that side, and there was an order. That doesn't fit either, okay? Then you can deal with in, in Joshua when they received their inheritance as far as in the promised land, and it lists the tribes. That doesn't work out either. So you might say, well, Brother Corey, where are you going with this? Well, hang on a second. So these lists of the 12 tribes here in Revelation 7, does it correspond to any of the other lists that we have in the Old Testament as far as the order of it, okay? Um, and I want you to look at this list because, first of all, you'll notice out of the 12 tribes, the first one mentioned is the tribe of Judah, not Reuben. Now, if you know the history of the family here, you'll know that Reuben was the firstborn, okay? And yet here, the tribe of Judah is mentioned first. Now, we know why the tribe of Judah is mentioned first, right? Because Jesus is the Lion of Judah. His lineage comes from Judah, so he's mentioned first. Then Reuben, who was the physical, actual firstborn. And then as you go through this list, you will notice that there's something peculiar as well. You have Manasseh mentioned there in verse 6, but you don't have his other brother Ephraim mentioned. And you might say, well, why is that an issue? Because Manasseh is not a son of Jacob or Israel. He's a grandson. If you'll remember uh, when the promised land was taken, 
Joseph's two sons got the share. You might say, well, I thought there were 12. Well, Joseph, he, his two sons, remember when, when he took them to Israel, they both became heirs of the promised land, and Levi, which is the priestly tribe, did not inherit any land. Okay, They served the temple and the tabernacle, and so they didn't own any land like the other tribes did. So it still all works out. And then you've got another peculiar thing. What happened to Dan? Dan is one of the original tribes of uh, Israel, and they're not mentioned in this list. Thus, that's why Manasseh's there, and Dan's not. He's the one, Manasseh's the one that took the place of Dan there in verse 6. And then you wonder why it includes Joseph and one of his sons as opposed to as opposed to just Joseph and Dan or minus Joseph and Levi and have both of Joseph's sons. In other words, this is a really odd list of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, so with that said, if you got it up there, uh, Devin, go right ahead. I want you to look at this closely for a minute. I've got a quote I want to read, and then we'll look at this list of... Uh, the Israelite tribes here that are mentioned in Revelation 7. Uh, Christopher Smith, a Bible scholar, has offered a clear and persuasive explanation of the selection and order of the tribes that are listed right here in Revelation 7. What he noticed was the difference between this list and all of the other Old Testament lists of Jacob's sons and Israel's tribes. And what he noticed is the differences in respect to quantity and ethnicity of the Lamb's army. And here's what he's saying. Notice, if you will, in that list, on the left is the list of the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, there in Genesis 35. That would be the original list. Okay, so that's what we're going to base it off of. The original list, you'll know that Jacob had four Four wives, right? He had Leah, and then he married Rachel. They were sisters. Um, they got jealous uh, when one started having kids and the other one didn't. And the acceptable practice back in that day, if you couldn't have children, is you would take a handmaid, a concubine, and she would get pregnant on behalf of the mistress, and that's how they built their family. And so you have the sons of the concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. And so basically you've got these four wives, if you will, that Jacob had married, and you see the sons he had from each one. He had six through Leah and two each from Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. Now here's what's interesting. All of us were Gentiles until Abraham came along. And Abraham became a Jew because he was the patriarch of the Jewish nation, right? Abraham, um, he followed God in faith. He ended up getting circumcised, which was a sign of the covenant. And God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He was known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. And that's where the Jewish people got started, okay? And so, through Jacob, who became Israel, he had all these sons through these four women. Now, here's the thing. Notice the list on the left. 
and compare it to the list on the right. The list on the right, you see Judah replaces Reuben at the top of the list. Uh, now, I could get into a lot of stories here, but I want to stay focused. Reuben did some things, you can read about it in Genesis, to disqualify his rights and privileges as the firstborn. Okay, And because Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, and he's the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, that's why Judah's at top. It emphasizes Christ, the tribe of the Messiah. Then you have Reuben, who would have been the natural firstborn, and then look what happens. The sons of the concubines of Bilhah and Zilpah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, they're all thrown up there at the top of the list. Number three, four, five, and six. And at that point, Dan is replaced with Manasseh, who is a grandson of Israel because he's the son of Joseph. Now you might say, well, why did they do that? Well, if you study the Old Testament... Dan, particularly, was involved in a lot of idolatry, okay? And so when you read about the tribe of Dan, they were known for a lot of idolatry, and for that, he's excluded from this list and replaced with Manasseh. And when I got to looking, Ephraim also was involved in idolatry. Ephraim is the brother of Manasseh. The, the grandson of, of, of Israel, the other son of Joseph, Ephraim also was involved in idolatry. Matter of fact, I think it goes back to when the kingdom split after Solomon. You had Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and uh, the kingdom split, and the temple was still in Jerusalem. The northern tribes didn't have access to it because the kingdom split, and so Jeroboam led Israel astray by putting altars set up in two different places, and I believe they were in the tribe of Dan and Ephraim, and people went there instead of Jerusalem. And it led the people, and it led the country into idolatry, okay? And so that's why Dan is scratched off, and Manasseh is put in his place, but not Ephraim, okay? And then you have the rest of the clan, Simeon, Levi, Ishkar, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin, in no particular order. Now, what I want you to see there is the three changes that were made. Judah is now at the top because he's the tribe of the Messiah. These concubines, not his actual wives, but these concubines, their sons are now elevated to the upper, upper top half of the list. And then Dan is excluded because of idolatry and replaced with Manasseh. What does that suggest? According to... Uh, Christopher Smith, his explanation says that these tribes that are listed shows that its purpose is to symbolize the inclusion of the Gentile nations into the sealed, protected people of God. Now, here's the thing. This is the most symbolic book in the Bible. I don't know many people that believe this 144,000 is literal. If, if you believe that only 144,000 people are going to heaven... How do you know who that is? You remember the Jehovah Witness, they used to teach that. The Jehovah Witness used to teach that, um, that, that only 144,000, literally only 144,000 people were going to heaven. And then their movement went way bigger than that. And then they had a crisis on their hands. Are you in? Are you out? Who knows? Who knows? Okay. So, so this number is very symbolic. And because of hearing the number, 
and then looking and seeing the vast multitude of, of every nation, tribe, people, and language, and then combine that with this peculiar restructuring order of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is kind of not because one of them is a grandson and not a son, I believe the Holy Spirit is using John here to really open our eyes to something. And that's what I want you to see. So the order, according to Dennis Johnson, the order of the tribes in Revelation 7 symbolizes the reign of Christ from the tribe of Judah, the incorporation of outcasts, these sons from the concubines, and the exclusion of idolaters from the covenant community like Dan that God shields from his terrible wrath. And so that is the lesson to take away from this. Um, another commentator said, All believers are sealed, just as all unbelievers are marked. And the 144,000 sealed in chapter 7 with the entire, are, are, are the entire community of the redeemed. First, all the redeemed believers are included when servants of God is used elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Second, when you consider the uh, Ezekiel 9 that I alluded to earlier uh, tonight, the backdrop to the passage where God distinguishes only true believers from unbelievers and not various groups. Uh, third, Satan puts a seal on all of his followers, and then presumably God does the same for all his followers. So those sealed are not a special group of martyrs or a, lot, or a last generation of believers or even a remnant of Jewish believers protected through the tribulation. They are all who know Christ, and they're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never thought about it before. When I was studying uh, over the weekend this, uh, this uh, list of the 12 tribes, it was very compelling. It was very intriguing. I went, wow, I've never seen this before. It's plain as day. It's right there. Uh, because it's so different from all the other lists that are in the Old Testament, it, it commands our attention. This is different. What's going on here? What does it mean? Well, let's go on. Revelation 7, verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, this is John talking, who are these people in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. And then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Boy, that's good. So we've talked about the, the when. When does this sealing of God's servants take place? It takes place before the judgments are unleashed, okay? Based on verse 3. And we've talked about the who. Who are these sealed servants of God? I believe it's the totality of, of God's people, Old and New Testament. And then the third part is where? Where did they come from? As it says there in verse 13. Notice this group, according to the text in verse 13, comes out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, and they're before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night 
in his temple. Now, Herschel Hobbes says, Between the judgments of chapter 6 and 8, assurance is given to God's redeemed people. On earth they're sealed for protection. In heaven they're victorious and joyful with every need provided. And I say amen to that. Um, Bill, uh, one of the commentators, says this. He says, notice in verse 14 it says, The Great Tribulation. The only other place in the New Testament outside of Revelation where you see the phrase the great tribulation, you know, the qualifier, great tribulation, occurs in a couple other places, Matthew 24 and Daniel 12. And let's look at those. Mine will sound a little bit different because I'm using the Christian standard, but you can still look at it. There in Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus is talking, for at that time... There will be great distress, or depending on your translation, tribulation. The kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Well, that's, that stands as a high water mark, don't it? It's, a, it's, it's a, something that takes place uh, that will never happen again. And it's never been that bad, and it never will be again. Um, <clears throat> the King James says it this way, For then there shall be great tribulation, such as was not since beginning since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Uh, and then Daniel 12, Daniel 12, verse 1. It says, At that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress, or tribulation, such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. The same qualifier there. Uh, such has never occurred since nations came into being until that time. And so according to Bill, the use of the definite article, the Great Tribulation, indicates that this is the latter-day tribulation prophesied by Daniel and also by Christ rather than just some season of tribulation. In Daniel's tribulation, the latter-day opponent of God's people persecutes them because of their faithfulness to the Lord. Some will fall away, even as some are doing in five of the seven churches of Asia, there in chapters 2 and 3, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia. The tribulation consists in pressures from the religious system to compromise one's faith and pressures from the world, which may include economic deprivation. I don't have to name names, but there is a well-known mainstream denomination in our country that's having an amical split. Um, and uh, it, it reminds me of that, that we're going to be persecuted if we don't go along with the politically correct theme of the day rather than God's Word, which doesn't change and never fails. Isaiah, it's interesting here, when you read these verses... In, in Revelation 7, verse 15, 16, and 17, talking about these sealed servants. They come out of the great tribulation, and now they're before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night, and He is their shelter. And it says in verse 16, they no longer hunger, thirst, or the sun will not strike them, nor any heat, and the Lamb will shepherd them. He'll guide them to springs of, of waters, or waters of life, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. A beautiful picture. And it reminds you of Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, verse 10, 
it says they will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them, for their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs. That sounds a whole lot like verses 16 and 17, does it not? Um, When you back up in context there in Isaiah 49, I just read verse 10. If you back up and read verse 5 and 6, I want you to hear it. Hear it closely. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and God, my God is my strength. He says, here it is, Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, is it not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob, and restoring the protected ones of Israel, I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Some people read Isaiah 49 and say he's talking about Israel, but ultimately he's talking about Christ who came from Israel because he fits the bill and he fulfills it all. And Christ came to the Jewish people, but he also came... And He sends us the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And so it's very significant when you tie these threads together that these sealed servants of God, anybody that knows God is a servant of God. And these sealed servants of God, they appear to be Jewish because the tribes of Israel mentioned. But as I mentioned earlier, when you see the list of the tribes and what's been changed, something's going on there. It implies the inclusion of outcasts, in this sense, Gentiles. And then he looks and sees the vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And then when the elder asks him in verse 13, who are these people and where did they come from? And John says, you know. And he tells them where they came from. And he indirectly tells you who they are because he begins to tell you where they are, they're before the throne of God now. And they're serving Him. And they long, no longer hunger or thirst. They're no longer, uh, the sun no longer strikes them. The heat doesn't scorch them. The Lamb is going to shepherd them. He guides them to springs of water. And He wipes away every tear from their eyes. And then you look at the promises in Isaiah 49. And guess what? They're right there. Same promises. Okay? And what does he say in context there in verse 6? Is it enough for my servant Christ to just take care of Israel? What about the nations? And Psalm 2 says that he's getting what? The nations as his inheritance. Wow. Sometimes I don't think we think big enough because God is the creator and the redeemer. He made us all and he died to save us all. And so it's pretty awesome when you think about it. Dennis Johnson says, The elder shows John the safety of this multitude in imagery drawn from Isaiah 49. In Isaiah's prophecy, God is the shepherd who leads his flock to springs of water. And in Revelation, the lamb is their shepherd. And this is fitting since he's in the center of the throne. And with the Father, he receives worship from all creatures. And to shelter his flock from sun and heat, their protector will spread his tabernacle over them that alludes to Ezekiel passages 
and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's in Isaiah 7 and 25. And these victors already taste the joys of the new Jerusalem, where God will dwell with his people, wipe every tear from their eye, and cause them to drink of the water of life. And so all these things, the no more tears and the water of life and the throne and the shepherd, you're going to see that at the end of the book. We just got a glimpse of the glorious future at the end of the book. It's right here. And all of this is meant to encourage the saints who are sealed by God. Now, I know we've covered a whole lot. We could keep plowing this field for a long time. So give me a minute and I'll land the plane. All right. So let me get practical for a minute. Here's the most important thing you need to know. How do you know if you're sealed? Well, let me put it to you this way. Every follower of Jesus is sealed. Okay? You don't have to worry about that. The Bible tells us that. In Ephesians 1.13, in Him, referring to Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. So the fact, the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus is established because I now have the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And because I have the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, that's proof that not only I'm saved, but it's proof that God's going to give me everything He's promised when I'm with Him in glory someday. The Holy Spirit now is a down payment to all that I'm going to enjoy and, and expect when I get there someday. Uh, not only is that truth given in the, in the Bible, it's repeated by Paul again to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21, Paul says, Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ, and who has anointed us. He has also put His seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Same thing, same ideas, same language. Said it just a little bit different, but another pound of that nail deep into the heart. We have been sealed by God. He has given us His precious Holy Spirit, and it's a down payment that we're going to get the whole inheritance someday. So every follower of Jesus Christ is sealed. And you can look at it this way in your understanding and in your experience. Our past was settled at the cross. Okay, You don't have to worry. If you're a child of God, you don't have to worry about judgment because your sins were dealt with at the cross at Calvary. They're covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen? So your past is settled at the cross. And your present, your current experience right now is assured. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. As a child of God, you now have the presence of the Holy Spirit and His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you belong to Him, that you are a child of God. You have the, the spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. And then our future is secure because of the promises of God. Think about it. He has promised things and He is going to do what He said He will do. And He is able to do what He said He will do. So, I'll finish with this tonight. Because we are sealed unto the day of redemption, my question to you is, are you ready? 
Are you ready for the day of redemption? The fact that devil, the devil's people, the people of the earth that, that follow the ways of the world, they'll have the mark of the beast. But a child of God, a servant of God, will be sealed. Okay? Everybody will be identified. Put it that way. Okay? You'll either have the mark or you'll have the seal. Are you sealed? Are you ready for the day of redemption? Because if you belong to Him, no matter what you have to go through down here, trials, tribulations, persecutions, it's nothing compared to what He's already done for us. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that good? I don't know about you, but that is good. We're going to end it there tonight. And I pray that this encourages you. Next week we'll come back and start chapter 8 and we will look at the seventh seal. We'll tie all that with the other six seals. And, and then all of a sudden it really gets interesting because then there's, there's more stuff. There's seven trumpets and then there's seven bowls. And by the time we get through all that, we're toward the end of the book. But uh, we'll just hang on. We'll get there. All right? So let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this time in your word. I pray that you would use it to encourage us and to strengthen us. Lord, that we can walk in faith and victory because we know who we belong to. We know that we belong to you. And Lord, we have the presence of the Spirit of God and the promise of the Scriptures to hold on to. Lord, strengthen us that we might be faithful to serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.